Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Dr. Mike Young of Athletic Lab. Mike is the founder and owner of Athletic Lab and is also the guiding force of Athletic Lab's training philosophy and methodology. He oversees all of the training instructional quality and staff education at Athletics Lab. Mike has a Bachelor of Science in Exercise Physiology from Ohio University, a Master's in Coaching Science from Ohio University, and a PhD in Biomechanics from LSU. Additionally, Mike has been recognized as a Certified Strength and Conditioning Specialist from the NSCA, a Level 3 Coach by USA Track and Field, Level 2 Coach by USA Weightlifting, and is a CrossFit Level 1 coach. Mike is also on the advisory board for the Korean Weightlifting Federation and has been featured in publications ranging from the New York Times to ESPN Insider. Mike has coached athletes to national and world championship appearances in five sports, bobsleigh, skeleton, track and field, triathlon, and weightlifting, as well as directing the training plans for professional athletes in the MLS, MLB, NFL, NHL, and PGA, and has coached at four Division I NCAA programs. On this episode, Mike and I discussed many topics, including Mike's background and his influences, the good and not-so-good things that Mike sees within the physical preparation profession. Mike walks us through his training system for brand-new athletes at the Athletic Lab. Mike also gives us an in-depth discussion on his training philosophy. Mike gives us his thoughts on training residuals and fatigue. Mike gives us his thoughts on acceleration, max velocity, and change of direction development for field-based athletes. Mike also talks about his use of Olympic liberations with his athletes. And Mike also gives us his top advice and resources to all of the listeners. Guys, this was an absolutely outstanding episode with Dr. Young, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Okay, Dr. Mike Young, it is an absolute pleasure to have you come on to the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. Just for the listeners, Mike, who may not be too familiar with who you are, which I would imagine won't be too many people, uh, just fill us in your background. Sure. So uh, I come from a both sports science background as well as a coaching background. And on the sports science side, uh, I have degrees in exercise physiology, coaching science, biomechanics. And uh, try to put that educational uh, background into my work as a coach. From a coaching standpoint, uh, I've coached in multiple sports at multiple levels. Um, my, my biggest influences there would probably be uh, Dan Path, Boo Schnader, uh, Ethan Reeve, uh, maybe Lauren Steegrave. I went to school at LSU and kind of have a uh, LSU family tree in terms of coaching influence. It just so happened that uh, some of the coaches that have come out of there have been absolutely legendary contributors to the field and have, and have really uh, done some amazing things in terms of athletic performance. And then I think uh, uniquely what I hope to bring to the field and, and try to share is that uh, coaching and science are not distinctly different things. They don't have to be uh, at odds with each other, they are really can be one and the same and complement each other. They both have their strengths and weaknesses, 
And uh, a good coach should be a, an amateur scientist, and, and uh, a good applied sports scientist should be able to speak the language of coaches. So uh, I try to bring a little bit of uh, those different backgrounds into what I do on a daily basis. Uh, currently working at uh, my sport performance training center as the director of research and performance. It's athletic lab in Cary, North Carolina. Uh, I've worked prior to that with uh, a variety of clubs, football and otherwise, and uh, track and field teams. Um, so my primarily have been working in athletics and uh, soccer, but dabble in other team sports here and there, like rugby and field hockey and so forth. Yeah, you have a very uh, athletic background in terms of um, in terms of uh, track and field, and also you've been involved in soccer. So we'll get into maybe some discussions around that because I've heard you talk about a lot of times the the sort of principles behind acceleration training and the way you hear a lot of coaches say, you know, that they're not completely applicable from track to say field based sports. But you know, I've heard you speak on still there's a lot of there can be a lot of carryover once it's coached well and whatnot. So we can talk about that in, in a few moments' time. In terms of, I know you named some of your influences there, Mike, in terms of you professionally with Dan and, and Boo and Lauren um, and a few others. In terms of influences on you just as a person, who would you say have been the biggest influences on you? Uh, I've had quite a few. I mean, none of these guys will be uh, tremendously big names or anything like that. Um, I, I would say of people of people that know, uh, of people that might be of regular names, Boo really set the tone for me uh, in terms of my coaching development, not only in terms of what I knew uh, as far as uh, X's and O's of coaching, but uh, he does things for the right reason, I think. And he, he himself is a product of coaching education and had some great mentors. And when I saw how much he selflessly gave uh, back to the community, I thought this is a guy that um, is absolutely at the top of his field and is completely selfless with his contributions back to the field. He's not doing it for fame. He's not doing it for money. In fact, many times he would he would be uh, counter to a good business approach to doing things. He was just doing it altruistically, essentially playing paying it forward to young coaches. And uh, you know, in terms of that, uh, I've looked at it and said, "Wow, this guy's uh, he's one of the best, if not the best, at what he does." Uh, before he retired and. He's freely giving away his time and information uh, when he doesn't have to. And uh, I've kind of taken that philosophy to heart. I think you see that pretty similarly with guys like Dan and Lauren and uh, Ethan Reeve and other good coaches in our field where the best of the best don't forward the information. The best of the best share whatever they know. And uh, it challenges us to be better coaches to do that. Um and I think it makes everyone around us better. So, um, you know, I think I, I, I go back to Boo a lot because he was an influence on me, not just as uh, the technical knowledge, but also in terms of his interaction with people and his selflessness as an educator. So it's ironic you mentioned Boo. Oh, I'm getting some feedback from my end of my mic. I don't know why. Hopefully it'll die down. But it's ironic you mentioned Boo because uh, I was literally just in the process of I'm putting together an email uh, for Boo, uh, send them on like a load of history videos, uh, like documentaries on like US presidents, US history, and because when I met him, like the two of us had a, a straightaway a connection on our love for history, so 
I was like, I always try and send him some like little his, historical like documentaries that I'm currently watching that I think he'll find interesting. Invariably though, he always comes back, but I've seen this already, so <laughs> he's always a few steps ahead of me. But it's it's still good though. Um, Mike, uh, next question that I, I want to ask you, I'd love to get your thoughts on, is in terms of the the good and the not so good that you currently see within the physical preparation, strength and conditioning, sports performance, whatever title you want to give it, uh, in terms of our profession, let's just say, what are the, the good and not so good things that you're seeing? And with the not so good things, what sort of solutions would you offer? So basically the question is, what makes you proud to be in a profession and what doesn't make you proud to be in a profession and with the stuff that's not making you so proud, how would you go about solving that? Sure. So I think uh, in some ways the good and the bad are one and the same thing. Right now we live in, uh, at least up until present, what I'd call the golden age of information for, mm. for coaches. Mm. Information is never been more readily available, either through the internet or coaching clinics or uh, email, emailing another coach or whatever the case is. There's more information out there, more readily available books and websites and blogs and so forth. And, uh, you know, I go speak quite often, probably average to uh, clinics or so a month. And it, it's always humbling and fascinating to me how many coaches are willing to give up their weekends and their hard-earned money and time away from their family to go and learn and improve themselves as a coach. So I think that really speaks to our profession in terms of the type of individuals that come into our profession. We tend to be people who are givers. Uh, we want to support the dreams of athletes and the people around us, and we want to improve ourselves. There's not a lot of professions that are that uh, selfless in terms of the pursuit of the profession, especially in, in our profession, there's not, uh, in many cases, a lot of money, lot much money to be had. You know, you have a lot of athletes or coaches who are struggling and just volunteering their time, but still giving away their money and uh, hours of recreational time to improve themselves at what they do. So I think that's fantastic. I think you got a lot of people who are sharing information. I think that's fantastic. A lot of different mediums to deliver that information. I think that's amazing. Uh, I think on the flip side of that, it makes it harder to discern what is good and bad. And we have quite a bit of uh, misinformation going around, and we also have quite a bit of uh, salesmanship going around because people are using these different delivery systems, whether it's Instagram or YouTube or selling a DVD or a book or whatever it is, to, to make money. And by, by no means do I think we shouldn't be making money. I think our field needs to make more money, if anything. But I think we should do it by the right way. We, we shouldn't be uh, stepping, on, stepping on the backs of others and pushing them down while we try to push ourselves up. We shouldn't be coming up with uh, sensationalist, dogmatic uh, claims that make good headlines but are not actually substantiated by research or actual applied practice. So it makes it harder and harder to discern what is good from bad now that we have all this information. Uh, another thing that I would say is, uh, I guess, kind of a, a bad thing about our field, and this is maybe going hand-in-hand hand with some of my previous comments, is that we have um, 
a move away from what I would say fundamental or basic type of understanding of what it takes to be really good. A lot of younger coaches sometimes jump ahead uh, of what I would consider a logical career path uh, progression because there is so much high performance information out there and they're looking at a lot of things that they don't really have any need to look at. You know, you don't need to monitor sleep or GPS tracking or, uh, you know, pull out the fanciest velocity-based training measures if the athlete isn't doing just the basic things well in terms of training and lifestyle management. When I say sleep management, I mean pulling out an app or something to that effect. Just do the basic, basic stuff well in terms of movement patterns, progression, planning, lifestyle. Are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? Are you managing stress well? We don't need to get caught up into all the bells and whistles. We don't need to pull out bands and chains and do accommodating resistance or flywheel or velocity-based training or uh, special reactive lights. Now, mind you, I use all of that stuff, but I think at the end of the day, if you're using that and it's not based on sound fundamentals, you're, you're going awry. Uh, and I think another area where that, that is kind of very similar to that is that you got a lot of coaches that are really caught up into monitoring. And uh, I love monitoring. Don't get me wrong. I, I have established pretty large-scale monitoring setups for a variety of teams and, and as well as in-house at Athletic Lab. But there's a lot of coaches out there that will monitor the effect of training without actually training. So, you know, we've got million-dollar monitoring routines and looking at every physiological parameter under the sun, but they're not doing the basic things like uh, just actual rudimentary type of fitness level things. you got guys that can't squat and can't run with good mechanics. Meanwhile, you're, you're pulling out uh, million-dollar monitoring setups. So I think, you know, we've got a handful of issues. Uh, maybe technology and the web are at the, root of, at the root of all of it. There's pros and cons to everything, I think. I would just caution, say, younger coaches that don't have the experiential uh, background or have kind of grown up being force-fed a massive amount of information like we are today, you have to be really careful in terms of your career progression uh, and making sure that you understand that the basics, that the fundamentals are are what we need to work on rather than uh, kind of jumping the shark straight to the million-dollar uh, fancy stuff. The sexy stuff comes last, I think. we got to get the, the non-sexy, fundamental, basic brick and mortar type things correct before we ever worry about that. And there's certainly a lot of coaches and practitioners out there who are sharing that same message. Um, you know, guys like Bern Gambetta and Brett Bartholomew and so forth. Uh, but I think that, um, you know, we, we can't lose sight of that. And the, the ideal scenario is that we have a mixture of both. We're neither Luddites who are stuck in the dark talking about how bad technology is. Neither are we, people that are just simply using technology and fancy training methods that look good on Instagram and YouTube, but not doing the basic things right, like uh, movement patterns and running mechanics and uh, loading progressions and so forth. Yeah, I'm actually really happy you, you mentioned that last part too, because it is a kind of a spectrum, because you do also see the overreaction from some older coaches saying, you know, all this technology is crap, and you're kind of like, if that was our thought process, we'd still be living in caves now. But at the other end of that continuum, 
because we're living in such a modern age of instant gratification, uh, all these sort of younger coaches just want everything now rather than realizing that mastery is the process of delayed gratification. So going back to your point again of, you know, earning and owning the fundamentals before, you know, you really earned your right to start playing around with these higher uh, levels of technology. So again, 100% agree with you on that. It's, it's something I've spoken about with a lot of other coaches and peers and mentors in the field, particularly uh, Liam Hennessy, who's the academic director of Satanta College here in Ireland. And Liam's like a legend within kind of sports science in Europe and the world, particularly in Ireland. And we spoke at length about this idea of mastery and the need to delay gratification. And because of the young coaches coming up now are just bombarded by information 24-7 and the ability to have information at their fingertips. And as you alluded to too, they have access to higher levels of technology and information that really they probably don't need to be using again, like you're, you know, monitoring sleep. And even though, listen, and you know too, sleep is important, nutrition is important, but uh, if they can't even have the fundamentals of coaching or how to coach a group or control a group, they really are putting a cart before the horse. So, yeah, it, and it's, it's funny too, because Liam also talked about that. It's a double, in his eyes, the, the good and the bad is a double-edged, the double-edged sword of the information and technology in our field right now. Like it's great to have all this information, but I, I think a good way of kind of seeing it is that we definitely don't have an information problem nowadays. What we what we do have is a critical thinking problem. The ability the ability to be able to filter all the information we have. Very similar to like I, I often say to people that there's there's people in the Western world who've got really really bad nutritional deficiencies and most people say what are you talking about there's an obesity epidemic how could someone have a nutritional deficiency and I'm like calories isn't our problem nutrition is so similar to like information isn't our problem but critical thinking is when it comes to our field that's right yeah I think you anytime someone makes it a black or white issue of technology is bad or uh, technology is great without looking at the other side it, it should be a red flag immediately Absolutely. I think the, yeah. the uh, best way to look at anything is a spectral. If you can master everything, then you are a ninja. If you if you have one domain, uh, master that one before moving on to another. And uh, it's ne it's never a black or white issue, I think. So, so Mike, a, que a question I really wanted to ask you, uh, because I, I see a lot of similarities between myself and yourself in terms that I think we're both like we really love the sort of science of training uh, and, and we're both pretty deep thinkers when it comes to the training process so my question is you I show up at the athletic lab your facility I'm an athlete what happens where do we go from there what does that process look like so uh, like I'm just uh, like just say I'm a brand new young athlete I walk in what what happens what's the whole process so if you're a brand new athlete the very first thing that we start is with an intake evaluation that'll basically start with an informal uh, questionnaire and survey. Do you have any question? Do you have any injuries? What's your training history? What's your sport? Uh, anything in particular we need to know, know about? Then we'll put the athlete through a physical assessment, and uh, that that is usually the extent of the first session. And um, that physical assessment will depend slightly on the athlete's sport, and we'll do tests that are. Fairly standardized. We have a, a couple in-house tests that are perhaps not used elsewhere, but we do a lot of the standardized benchmark tests that are uh, common to the different sports. We don't try to reinvent the wheel. And then if an athlete doesn't end up staying with us for whatever reason, they can take those results with them. 
they're essentially uh, the equivalent of combine-ready results because we're using the best testing equipment and the best tests and measures procedures. Once we have that information, we can make informed decisions on what needs to happen next. We offer both uh, small group training as well as individualized training for, for younger athletes. Uh, obviously, those two different domains come with different pros and cons. Small group training comes with the benefit of the group dynamic. Mm. So a lot of people work better in that. It can't be quite as individualized, however. And then obviously, one-on-one -on -one type training is hyper-individualized. We can do a lot of things that maybe we couldn't do in the group training. But what we'll try to do is essentially train towards improving the physical capacities necessary for that athlete's sport in the context of their individual strengths and weaknesses. And then we will try to test and retest uh, throughout this whole process. So uh, the name of the business is Athletic Lab, and that's uh, not by coincidence. We are trying to apply the scientific process and scientific method to the training of sport. And part of that is uh, undergoing test retest cycles. So we're regularly testing and retesting and assessing, auditing both our training as well as the progress of the athlete. We can, we can then make decisions based off of whether someone needs to train more or less, or we need to, uh, increase the training volume or intensity or do different exercises or perhaps, uh, switch up what we were doing altogether. So, uh, this process is basically just, a repeated cycle and we're trying to get athletes to uh, sustain this cycle basically as as long and as often as they can because as you know training is a process it's not a one and done type of thing so uh, that is something that we sometimes battle athletes will feel like they can do their preseason preparation with us and then maybe not come in for a while and as you know that's that's not going to cut it that's two steps forward and two steps back so we're trying to keep the training process ongoing. Uh, we do train some teams where we're essentially embedded on their staff, but we also have a lot of athletes that are just kind of coming in on their own, uh, you know, anywhere from one to five times in a week. And that, that variability and that uh, difference in uh, demographic uh, can, can be a challenge. But uh, the, the test retest process, um, focus on fundamentals and basics, sprinkle in a little bit of science and technology, and that's that's how we do things at Athletic Lab. Really nice, nice stuff. If I was to pose the question to you, Mike, what is your training philosophy or what are the training principles or the big rocks that you abide by when it comes to uh, the organization of the training process? So you can go as global as you want from this, like, in terms of looking at this over like an athlete's career to, you know, if you go as macro, if you like, in terms of the actual, what does the session look like to the micro cycle, meso, macro, if they're the terms you use, or just week low, weekly and block cycles. So you can, you can attack this from any way you want to go. If you want to go more global and get in more specific or go specific, get more global or however you want to attack left. So just in terms of your training philosophy, and I'm always careful using that, that term, because I know there's one or two coaches like Byrne and Buddy Morris, I said philosophy, and they're like, I don't have a fucking philosophy, I've got principles, I don't, I'm not a philosopher, or whatever, so, but like, whatever, again, whatever word you want to use there, like, what, what is your kind of overarching sort of thought process when it comes to your organizational training? 
so I guess from the 10,000 foot level, what I would say is that I, I don't look at myself as a straight coach or a speed coach or even a conditioning coach. I would look at myself as a human performance coach. So I want to tackle all aspects of human performance and anything that has an influence on them. Uh, obviously, the, the biggest things are going to be uh, the training and the load and the progression and so forth. But I'll also look at things from a very holistic view and, again, try to tackle nutrition and sleep and wellness and stress management uh, because all of those play into this grander scheme of human performance. So uh, I guess underlying all of that is a well-rounded and comprehensive understanding of the sports sciences. I think if you have a decent concept and ideally better than decent, ideally uh, you know, approaching mastery of what you – the different sports sciences – uh, you can really start to connect dots, and by connecting the dots, you can uh, improve human performance to a much higher level than someone that was just focused on the strength domain. So uh, delving or taking that same philosophy and applying it to training itself rather than just human performance in general, what I would say is that we're still like looking at things from a very general holistic viewpoint. Uh, much like Dan or Boo or uh, Lauren Seagrave would say, I want to train an athlete so that they are bi balanced biomotor animals. I want to develop each biomotor ability to a level that is appropriate and balanced for their particular sport at that particular point in the year. Um, we're going to address everything, strength, speed, flexibility, stamina, so forth, skill level. And we're going to address every system of the body. So we'll not only be uh, balanced biomotor, but we'll also be uh, balanced in terms of the systems of the body that we incorporate. I think one of the things that uh, a lot of coaches try to do, but is uh, not, not the best approach in my opinion, especially when you have a, a good understanding of things, is they try to put things in these really nice, neat boxes. And so coaches will uh, try to say, okay, today's our energy system development day or today is our plyometric day or it's our max strength day or whatever the case is. Or today we're going to work on the neuromuscular system. Today is the aerobic system. And you see different terminology and different ways of describing these things. But essentially what coaches are doing are putting human performance into these nice neat boxes. And I can understand why they would want to do that. It simplifies this process. but it overlooks the fact that the human body just simply does not work like that. All of the systems of the body, all of these biomotor abilities, physical capacities are intertwined with one another so that they all have an influence on one another. If we improve one, we have the capacity to potentially improve the other. And if we likewise focus too much on one, we run into the problem of potentially uh, stunting our long-term development. So I'm always looking at balancing biomotor and, and system, systematic training so that I can continually push the needle forward on performance. In terms of the specifics, uh, you know, I tend to think of, uh, again, looking at these different capacities and different systems of the body and looking at how they intertwine and looking at both how we develop the physical capacities as well as the technical efficiency. So I'm... 
from a sports science background, most well-versed in biomechanics and physiology. And in terms of biomechanics, uh, that's what my doctorate was in, and I'm always looking at how can we improve the physical output with regards to our physical capacity. So any, at any given physical capacity, how can we improve performance just by streamlining the efficiency of movement? Uh, anyone that is shortchanging one of these areas is really leaving a lot on the table for their athlete's performance. So I think how can we address all of these different aspects? Every single thing that we do from the warm-up to the cool-down is an opportunity to, to address technique or movement awareness in some fashion. Uh, even if you're trying to incorporate movement variability, uh, I think there's still opportunities there to enhance performance and efficiency. Likewise, how can we intertwine these different modules of training so that we literally ch check every box in an appropriate manner and an appropriate load for that athlete in terms of the biomotor abilities and assist different systems of the body so that we end up with the best possible end product. Yeah, that's really great stuff. And I know from Boo too, he talks a lot about training compatibility. And how how does that feature with you in terms of your programming? Uh, are you conscious of? Because again, it's it's funny. I was listening to actually a uh, an interview with Miladin uh, Janovic with Kirwan and Flat, and they were talking about Alvar Mills um, training system. And actually, Alvar Mills training system is what I've utilized for the last number of years because Al's probably been one of the biggest influences on me in terms of how I program and just from a, from that sort of standpoint. And I actually got to spend two days with Al in his home two years ago. I kind of just like, I basically just like laid out all my stuff and I was like, okay, critique this. And he was like, you're doing a pretty good job. He's like, you, you took my work and I've done, you've made, made some nice adjustments here and there. But yeah, basically what Maladin was saying was that if you look at sort of like a lot of systems, even outside of training, like economics, like if you were to look at like investment, they would say it's always good to have a diversified portfolio. So bringing that back to training, it's kind of like Charlie Francis and virtual integration. You train everything all the time, but you always emphasize and make sure that you don't have too many non-compatible qualities conflicting too much. So do you look at a lot at, at training compatible or compatibility and compatible compatible qualities in terms of the in terms of biomotors and energy systems, and I suppose under under that kind of all-encompassing umbrella of just physical capacities and off that too do you look at any training residual timelines and how you set up your training blocks yeah so I think if you're if you're really trying to get to master level of coaching what you're doing is playing eight level chess yeah, yeah. Uh, eight dimensional chess you know you're always looking at these different interactions and how how they can be incorporated and fit into the balance of the real world so in terms of my training, as I said before, Boo and Dan have had a massive influence on my coaching philosophy. So whenever possible, I'm trying to in, uh, incorporate different training modules in such a way that they're what we would call compatible and complementary. They go together well, and ideally they actually complement each other in a way that it's not one plus one equals two, but one plus one equals three. And we can do that in a variety of ways, uh, reducing interference effect, increasing post-activation potentiation, and so forth. But in a nutshell, what we're trying to do is pair together different methods of training so that uh, they have the best possible outcome. One of the things that I'll frequently talk about 
in training theory lectures is that nowadays, in particular in light of what we spoke about earlier of the internet and uh, books and lectures and clinics all over the place now, all coaches have availability to what I call the bricks. We all know the exercises. We have, you know, bars and bumpers and kettlebells and bands and so forth. Uh, those are what I'd call the bricks. We all have access to the bricks, give or take, but it's how you put those bricks in order that determines whether you have a junk pile of bricks or a brick mansion. And at the end of the day, the expert coach isn't about, uh, isn't distinguished by having better bricks. We've all got the bricks. Anyone can go out and do the same exercise that I do. Uh, the thing that distinguishes someone who is doing a great job versus someone who is, uh, not is how we assemble those bricks. You put them together mishmash and you get a Frankenstein type of a program where those same exact bricks are put together in an ugly fashion or disordered fashion and you're not going to see the results that you want. You put them together how you want and it becomes artful. It becomes uh, you know something very special where the athlete is going to see much better results. So again, I'm always looking to pair appropriately and that's occurring on the session level uh, as well as the micro, meso, macro level. You know, how do we look at these ebbs and flows of training and uh, get the best possible result? Uh, to the second question, I think that I'm always looking for residual effect. One of the things that I'll frequently tell to uh, some of our athletes is that we can't take a single training session or even a single training module out of the context of what's occurred before and after it. Yeah. The impact of training uh, is... Uh, occurring both before and after, right? So you'll sometimes see athletes who ramp up anxiety and arousal just in in light of an upcoming session. Likewise, you might have athletes who uh, feel the residual fatigue effects of a session for as much as a week or two afterwards. And these training and detraining timeframes and adaptation timeframes are, are very much important to understand if you want to create the best possible training cycle, especially in season when your ability to train athletes at a high level or is going to be much more limited. And we have to be very careful about what loads and what stimuli we have, we apply to the person because we don't have the time to apply everything. So different training uh, adaptations will detrain at different rates. Different ones will hold on for much longer or less. And we need to be aware of these. Likewise, there's some adaptations which may not come to the fore for you know, a week or more. And uh, if we go through a full cycle uh, of training and our focus is one thing and we test at the end of that cycle and the results aren't where the athlete was expecting, that doesn't necessarily mean that that training cycle didn't have the desired outcome. We have to look at it in the full context of the season or the, the macro or whatever. So we need to always kind of keep in mind these the long-term approach. You know, I'm I'm always telling my athletes play the long game. I don't I don't care about uh, you know what what it looked like today necessarily. Uh, that's of much less importance to me than the bigger picture and the training process as a whole. There's going to be ebbs and flows of training. Um, we can't make assessments and either back off too much or get greedy and go for too much uh, based off of, you know, one one indicator when 
really we need to step back and look at things as a whole. And that's why I think coaches always need to be mindful of, of doing some form of monitoring because the reality is that even the most OCD and, uh, um, you know, best practiced memory is not going to remember a team full of athletes and how they how they progress and how they ebb and flow throughout the course of a cycle. We'll, we'll tend to remember both the highs and the lows and not remember everything that happened in between. Uh, and I think it can misguide us in terms of the interpretation of our own training and their adaptation. So it becomes important to kind of take notes and make sure we're seeing what we think we're seeing. And again, coming back to test testing and retesting. So how do we assess, you know, the, the, the performance of a session or the performance of a cycle? We need to take it into the context of the bigger picture rather than looking at it under a microscope. Just with residuals, do you have any good resources that you've looked to? And the, re- the reason why I ask is because you often hear such conflicting thoughts or opinions on it. So, like, for instance, in Vladimir Ishrin's block periodization books, he shows that the residuals of, say, aerobic capacity are quite long. But yet other people say that aerobic capacity deteriorates quite quickly. Now, obviously, there's going to be uh, it's going to be specific maybe to the individual and their uh, training history, you know, of, of how much how much development they have of a certain physical capacity or certain physical trait in terms of its decay rate. But have you any good resources that you've looked at on that in terms of residuals? And the reason why I ask is it's just a fascinating area to me. And I've spoken with Dr. Greg Half about this, and Dr. Half believes that training residuals and, and understanding fatigue are like the holy grails of sport and sports science because there's such an inter intra individual sort of um or inter individual uh um difference among um athletes and I remember speaking to Dan about it too and I'm gonna ask you this in terms of also testing now in a few minutes you know like how you set up your testing because again if an athlete isn't fully recovered maybe the fatigue then is covering up or masking the actual fitness benefit they got from this a specific training block but. In terms of residuals, Mike, do you have any good resources you've looked on that, or is it just more so your own hypothesizing based off what you've read in that area so far? Unfortunately, I don't have, a, I say, a book to reference, but there is quite a bit of research on looking at detraining timeframes. Hmm. Uh, you know, Ishran obviously has some contributions at Siorski, uh, Siv, Berkashansky had some contributions and thoughts that were uh, based largely on unpublished research on all of those guys. Uh, I think we have some some insight as well from the actual sporting world uh, when we look at uh, the performances of speed power athletes in general. You oftentimes see them hold on to training adaptations for much much longer uh, in that complete cessation or absence of training. Maybe sometimes actually improve. Um, and then meanwhile, we have other athletes that will tend to fall off re- quite rapidly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when, when you look at the conflicting research, I think we need to make sure that we're all speaking the same terminology. Are we looking at uh, something very global or are we looking at something very specific? So, I, uh, you know, I'm familiar with the different, different uh, I guess, timeframes from different camps, so to speak, or different uh, detraining timeframes. And I think if we were to put them under the lens of actual performance uh, or – uh, we'll get, we will get one outcome. We'll get one set of recommendations. 
But then if we look at what underlies those performances, we may see that the detraining timeframes are slightly different. So for example, aerobic performances is very global. Many things go into aerobic performance. Mm. The degree of capillarization, enzymatic processes, uh, blood volume, and so forth. So one of those, one or two of those metrics may start to fall off immediately, but they may not be enough to significantly impact aerobic performance. Yes, yes. So we, we need to look at the picture as a whole because the last thing you want to have happen is think, oh, it's okay, it's okay, I can detrain. Meanwhile, one of these variables is quickly reaching a tipping point. And once that reaches the tipping point, now we're in a point of no return if we are, say, in season or uh, in a championship period. So we need to look at it, uh, you know, perhaps a little bit deeper than just, say, looking at, you know, the, the outcome because yeah. the outcome may not be the, the best indicator. I think when we look at that, we can see that there are certain things that uh, definitely tend to fall off pretty quickly and there's some physiological data to support it. Um, and there's other things uh, like, you know, um, neurological issues, neurological factors, which will tend to decay very, very slowly. You know, we look at uh, the neurological impact of a distance runner weight training or doing plyometrics. They're going to see that benefit even when you remove that stimulus for quite a long time. Um, likewise, if, uh, you know, I've had plenty of speed power athletes get sick, they stop training. Uh, weightlifters, bobsled athletes, track and field athletes, they have to stop training for a week and they come back and they set a PR. Obviously, their fitness didn't, didn't improve, uh, but they, their fatigue probably got less. And as a result, the fitness that they had developed was able to shine through because it didn't decay at a very rapid rate. I think we can also take some insight into the fact that uh, the basic work habits of these population demographics as a whole. When we look at a lot of, say, strength athletes, they will tend to train probably anywhere between four and five times a week. Typically, not more than that. You know, we look at power lifters and a lot of weight, Olympic weightlifters, especially those that are not on significant pharmaceutical enhancement. We look at endurance athletes, and they're frequently as many as 14 to 20 sessions in a week at the elite level. Um, we look at track and field sprinters and jumpers and that kind of thing, and we see that they may only have uh, three heavy hitter sessions in a, in a week, and maybe as little as one. You know, you look at a guy like Jonathan Edwards or Greg Rutherford, they may go as long as seven to ten days between really heavy heavy hitters speed power sessions, but they're still able to maintain. So there's obviously individual differences, but I think when I look at it from both the uh, observational standpoint, in terms of observational evidence of what the vast majority in each demographic is doing, as well as kind of piecing together the detraining timeframes that is uh, – you know, visible in the research. Uh, in my in my experience, aerobic qualities tend to drop off relatively quickly, um, like high performance aerobic qualities, without uh, without if we have a complete cessation of training. Um, that the anaerobic glycolytic ones probably fall off maybe even before that. Uh, speed and neurological related activities can be maintained quite a bit longer. And then strength-related activities can hold on probably the longest, maybe as long as four to six weeks in the cessation of, of a training stimulus 
and maintain as much as 80-85% doing nothing. Uh, I don't think that's true with too many of these other different variables. So, yeah, there's individual individual differences, um, and it would be interesting to see if those same training time frames or detraining time frames and adaptation time frames are the similar across different populations. So, for example, do do sprinters detrain less in speed power qualities uh, relative to an endurance athlete, or do they? Does their physiological makeup require them to have different frequencies of training just to maintain those different qualities? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think anyone has the full answers. I think we have some clues out there, both in the real world as well as in the research. So, unfortunately, I don't have any any massive reading uh, resources that, that anyone could look up. Uh, you really have to delve into it a little bit and kind of uncover, piece together bits and pieces here and there. That, it, that do exist in the in the research as well as the real world. I think it's it's a fact it's always going to be so individual to the athlete that it's just going to be a process of constantly monitoring their response to training because, again, everyone's the ability to depositate fatigue and, and acquire development of certain capacities is always going to be uh, different at, at an individual level, you know, to, to different, di- different degrees, be the minor degrees or quite large degrees because, like even I was talking to Chris Corfus there a while ago, and Chris was saying like he had an athlete, and he's like, if you train that athlete hard more than once once a week, he just overtrains. He's like, no matter what he done, he's like, this guy can only hit a hard once a week. Whereas you got so obviously he just had a very he could just tap into his neurological pool very well. Whereas you got other athletes who who just don't have as and who aren't as neurologically efficient, so they don't acquire as much damage or fatigue, and you know they could probably take two or three heavy hits a week. So. It's, it's always going to vary, so it is. So uh, it's probably a case of just having a good monitoring system in place and something that's reliable and, and objective in terms of knowing things like decay rates and residuals and when to, when someone could be potentially fresh. And pretty much like what Dr. Bonnerchuk probably tried to do with his model and that like he tried to decipher that. I know that this amount of sessions is when this person peaks. So he did it more so kind of almost subjectively rather than using technology at the time. That's right, yep. Uh, Mike, uh, so you, you know you're very much known for speed and power uh, development, as well as your sort of um, you're very well versed in terms of your knowledge and acquisition with technology. Just when it comes to speed and power, what are, what's what is your again? We'll say again, we could go macro to micro on this. What is your sort of global thought process with speed power development? And again, if you want to tackle that from the career of an athlete in terms of a long-term athletic development sort of pathway, and then how does that maybe, what does that look like maybe in a session with, you know, a more novice, intermediate to advanced athlete? And maybe what are some of your favorite methods to use along that pathway? So this is a, a very, very generalized viewpoint here, but what I would say in terms of philosophy is I will largely take a, short to long type of approach. We'll generally work on acceleration before we progress to higher end speed. If I have a long long training plan ahead of me, 50 plus weeks, uh, I will really stretch that out. I won't rush through acceleration just to get to top end speed or it might take me several weeks to get to runs that are 30, 30 plus meters. Um, I think that acceleration needs to be touched on at all points with all athletes. I think there's both a neurological benefit to that as well as the simple practical standpoint of that you can't get to top end speed without accelerating. So it's something that needs to be addressed at all points in time. Uh, 
I guess a second fundamental principle here would be that we need intent to be high at all times. So if we're trying to train yeah. speed and power development, that intent is really key. Uh, you can't just half-ass it and go through the motions. Sprinting is a unique thing in that unlike other activities like uh, plyometrics or squatting or something for that effect, you can't sprint submaximally. Once it is submaximal, it is no longer sprinting. It is running or jogging. Uh, you can squat with lesser load or slower, uh, but you can't sprint slower. So it, it ceases to be sprinting. So intent has to be there, at least to some extent. It doesn't quite have to be maximal, but it needs to be pretty high level, I believe. Uh, and then the other thing that I think needs to be present is a focus both on the physical side of things as well as the mechanical side of things. These two things go hand in hand, but uh, a lot of coaches, in particular those that come from the strength and conditioning world, will focus simply on the physical capacity without worrying about the technical capacities. And that's like saying, hey, I'm going to build a race car and just build a massive, powerful engine, but then put it into a dump truck. Uh, obviously, that's not the chassis that's going to go well. So we want to make sure that we build a big, big, huge engine, but also put it into a race car body so that the power that we are able to develop is uh, affected or shown in, in, a, uh, in a manner on the field or the pitch or the track that will make that athlete run most efficiently and most fast. So, you know, it, it's really difficult to, uh, I guess, wrap that up into, uh, I guess, a short podcast. Uh, I'll frequently give two-day workshops on speed development. Uh, in terms of what things look like in, within the session, uh, I'm always trying to keep things, keep the quality high. So that, that again, comes back to uh, intent. And I'm always trying to focus on execution. So, again, looking at both mechanics as well as physical capacities. So if either one of those drop off, uh, say performance drops off, then or mechanics start to look terrible, I'll shut the session down. If it's not just some bad rep, I will shut the session down because I don't want to practice doing it poorly. Uh, I want to practice doing it well with full intent and high performance. The thing with speed development is that we need to maximize intent and minimize fatigue. So it, unlike many other forms of training, we actually don't want to push the athlete to extreme levels of fatigue. There's going to be some neurological fatigue that the athlete will certainly incur, but speed sessions are best performed when the athlete leaves the session relatively fresh. And we're all, I should always be looking to see that, that uh, performance has not fallen off. So uh, can you give full effort? Can I plan out the uh, set rep distance loading and make sure that we have appropriate amounts of rest so that we can maintain the quality both in movement and in effort throughout the duration of the workout? I always keep my volumes relatively low and relatively fixed. So accelerations, acceleration development, I rarely go over 300 meters. And most of the time it's in the mid 200 meters of range. Mm. If we're talking about field and sport, field and court sport athletes where we want to incorporate changes of direction. Then instead of talking about meters, I may uh, quantify things in terms of seconds of effort. So if we're going to uh, do a side shuffle or a backward run or 
of some form of a cut within the middle of the repetition, I will equate that roughly to those same guidelines of volume. Uh, as I said before, my distances tend to be quite short. I spend the bulk of my speed training uh, both with sprinters and with uh, field and court sport athletes doing repetitions of, uh, I would guess, 40 percent, 40 meters or less, or five seconds or less, about 80 percent of the time. And uh, we only go beyond that, uh, the remaining 20 percent. So again, to wrap, wrap that up very simply, uh, as simply as possible, quality high, uh, intent high, fatigue low, a focus on both uh, mechanics and the physical capacities, and uh, trying to make sure that performance never drops off. So uh, just a, a, a continuing on with, with this uh, discussion here on, on your kind of speed and power and your progressions, in terms of field-based athletes, would you start to add in an external stimulus and response as you progress? And with the change of direction agility, um, do you like to program that on separate days? So let's say if you had like a four-day setup, would you have two linear and two multidirectional? Or if it was a three-day setup, would be like one linear, one multi-direct, or uh, like it could be an acceleration day, a multi-directional day, and maybe more of a top-end day if it was a three-day setup. And then also with the agility stuff, do you start to progress that to more reactive and um, stimulus-based type stuff as well? Sure. So I I do both of the above. I think I try to start off relatively simple and somewhat scripted, and then I will. This is both over the course of an athlete's career as well as their uh, longitudinal progression over the course of the season. Start off scripted and predictable, uh, focusing on movements in a very finite, uh, discrete task, uh, and then move to predictable, unpredictable, more chaotic, reactive, cognitive processing type of activities, something that I think will have a better transfer to this, the actual sporting domain. Uh, in terms of teasing things out, I, for the most part, do not tease out uh, what, we, what most coaches would refer to as agility with acceleration. If an athlete does need to work on agility or change of direction capacities, I will typically just include that in my max or excuse me, my acceleration days. Uh, so we'll either start with some form of change of direction or plyometric, or we will throw it into the middle. Uh, of the movement, so we could do it uh, uh, side shuffle and then into a 10 or 20 meter sprint, or we could do five meters out, react to an audible or visual stimuli, and do something, uh, so whether that's side shuffle or back pedal, and then sprint out again, or chase a ball, or whatever it is. Uh, but I'll try to include those because I think in the in the sporting world on the field or court that it doesn't occur separate. We're not just running linearly. And then just running laterally or uh, changing direction. So they need to be incorporated together for the most part. If I am going to work on top end speed, uh, I think that's one area where I would generally make it distinct unto itself. We rarely have to change direction at top end speed. Um, you know, when we do, we have to go through a, a large deceleration period relatively quickly. Um, so. You know, at top end speed, when I refer to top end speed, I'm referring to it in terms of track and field terms where we're at, at absolute max velocity, not 90% stuff. 90% stuff is 
would easily go underneath the uh, kind of umbrella of acceleration change of direction days. But if we're working on top end speed and the mechanics associated with it and the physical capacities associated with it, I think it is both a different motor program um, with different movement patterns as well as different physical capacities as acceleration. And I think that's not the case with acceleration and uh, change of direction. So change of direction, linear acceleration lumped together. Uh, if, if they are both needed and then top end speed kind of teased out if I want to solely focus on that. Um, and then if I, if I have the luxury of putting them on different days, I, I will do that as well. Great stuff. So just moving on to technology, Mike, uh, I know this is a, an area that, uh, that, that you've invested a lot of your time in, a lot of your money in. And obviously, you you mentioned it on at Athletic Lab. By the way, I love the, I love that name for facility Athletic Lab. I think it's great. Uh, in, in terms of um the technology utilized at Athletic Lab, what piece of technology uh do you utilize if you can divulge that and and like what why those specific pieces were chosen and, and what exactly do you utilize them for? So we've got a handful of things uh that we use on a day to day basis. We can do uh, ultrasound body composition. We have blood lactate monitoring. Uh, we have a team heart rate monitoring application. We use catapult GPS and heart rate monitoring with uh, two soccer clubs that I work with. Um, we also have several other measures for velocity-based training. We use push. Uh, we found it to be very, very useful. Uh, in our setting, it's the, it's the perfect uh, tool for us to use where we can deploy it on a larger scale, sometimes as many as 12 people at the same time using it. Um, it allows us to get a lot of insight into what's going on with that athlete. We use it for testing, auto-regulating training, uh, prescribing load, that kind of thing. Uh, we also use a, a, a K-Box, which gives us several different things. I guess you could kind of call the, the device itself a piece of sport technology, but what we use is the uh, K-meter on it, which gives you eccentric power, uh, which I think is very, very valuable for uh, getting an athletic metric that carries over very well to both injury prevention as well as uh, sport performance. So we're looking at these metrics on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, as well as in testing and trying to, you know, make it seamlessly integrated into the training process. Uh, we've got a couple other things, I guess. Uh, I guess the one of the ones that is used probably the most uh, on a day-to-day -day basis across populations is our smart speed. So we have a, a smart speed uh, timing system that allows us to do both testing and training. So you can do reactive type training. You can do, do uh uh, Auto-regulatory speed training with terms of, in terms of drop-off times, great for driving intent and getting immediate feedback. Uh, the light and timing system can be used in an unlimited amount of ways to uh, incorporate some of those reactive cognitive processing type of uh, actions uh, into agility and change of direction training. So. I'm probably leaving off two or three things that we have. We do have a handful of toys. Um, we, we implement them all on a near daily basis. Uh, if something better comes along, we, we go with that. 
we try to make sure that whatever we're using is meeting the, the basic requirements of scientific data collection, so it's reliable, valid, accurate, and that we can incorporate it seamlessly into the training plan. It should never be our focal point of the training. It should be the icing on the cake, so to speak, so that we are able to add a little bit to the fundamentals. Uh, we have done without all of those different training devices, but each one allowed us to do something that we were already doing or couldn't do in the past better. Um, and, and I think that uh, that's why each one has kind of become indispensable to us because they open doors for us, whether it's new metrics, uh, new forms of test and measurements, new forms of quantification, uh, new forms of auto-regulation, uh, different insight into whether our training is working or not working, being able to drive intent and motivating an athlete. So they all have different benefits, I guess. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't include them. Yeah, so that's great stuff. Uh, and just I meant to say, with, with your with your speed work, yeah, you kind of alluded to it there. Are you like in terms of managing the fatigue? Are you always timing it to make sure that you're getting what you want, and and do you kind of auto auto regulate that in terms of like you'll cut it off if it's if it's going south? So we don't always time, but but I do time quite regularly, in particular with um, with my elite track and field guys, and we will time in such a way that it is not a test. So if I'm using it for auto regulatory purposes, I might put the timers at uh, a arbitrary distance. So we might be running 30s, but I'll set the timing gates at 26.5 meters so they can't compare it to their their known test numbers. Uh, another thing that I sometimes do is I will keep track of the numbers and the, the uh, performance metrics, but I won't always share it with the athletes. So I don't want them to feel like every single day is a competition. Uh, sometimes it's good to use that information to drive intent and to ramp it up and make things competitive, but other times I just want it to have uh, in full, be able to make informed decisions. There are other points in the year where I really don't care at all about their test numbers or their, their daily performance metrics. I'm, I care more about getting in the work. And uh, those numbers are an assessment of performance. And there's certain times of the year where performance is going to drop because we need to get the training in. So I don't care about performance so much during those points in time. I just need to get the workload in. Um, you know, in those cases, I will still keep track of things. I'm pretty good, I think, with my eye over the years at being able to tell when there are small changes in terms of mechanics or even a performance drop-off, um, you know, even just doing informal surveys. How's that, how are you feeling? Are you still feeling okay? That kind of thing can be very insightful uh, into how much more an athlete has left in them. Yeah, it's it's just it's an area that I've been discussing an awful lot lately in terms of sort of fatigue percentages, you know, going off uh, kind of Chris Corfus stuff and talking to Joel Smith and a lot of people are utilizing a lot of timing systems in, in so that they have the ability to give that sort of immediate feedback in terms of um, fatigue percentages or drop offs in, in their sort of power and speed work. Uh, I know you're a big proponent of the Olympic Olympic list, Mike. Um, and I, I think I, when I spoke to you at Altus, you were like, no matter who, who the individual is and sport, you, you now you can correct me on this, that you nearly always have some type of variation within nearly every program. 
I think you did you say that even if you have a healthy general population person, you'd like to include like a, a variation or uh, some derivative of the Olympic lifts in the program. And if so, um, what what has led you to be such a big proponent, or what is it that you love about the the Olympic variations? I, I like them for several reasons, um, but I think um, I could make a let me let me start off by saying I could make a devil's advocate case for either direction, but I think those are uh, contrived arguments and not necessary. I have no problem coaching the Olympic lifts to competency uh, in as little as two days. Um, we see it all the time. Uh, I, I don't say that as a point of bragging. It's a point of fact. We see it all the time with general population. We can coach someone to competency uh, who has never done the Olympic lifts in as short as two days. Um, so it's a tool where I think it can be very fun and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I think it's uh, has elements of a movement that can cross over a little bit into the athletic domain. Uh, I'm not using them specifically for for uh, sports specificity per se, as I am for looking at them in terms of their power development. So I think there are a lot of crossovers in terms of the muscles involved, the firing patterns, the rate coding, uh, the power outputs that we won't otherwise get in the weight room or we have to get a little bit more creative. So yes, I like jump squats. I like um, you know kettlebell swings and split lunge jumps and so forth. Uh, but if, if I don't have to take Olympic weightlifting movements out of the program I won't um, I would guess about 80% of the people in at, at athletic lab perform at, perform weightlifting movements in some fashion in some cases that may just be a clean pull uh, they may never rack the weight but in most cases they're going to be doing full Olympic lifts uh, meeting power cleans uh, primarily as as uh, some in some fashion in their training uh, we don't train them like weightlifters per se, uh, but they're going to learn how to power clean. Most won't do a snatch or a jerk because it is a little bit more technical. And the more technical it gets, it's kind of uh, shifted itself in terms of my, both my risk reward as well as the, uh, you know, time input and potential benefit for it. So we'll do clean poles quite a bit. We'll do hang cleans. We'll do power cleans. I'd say that 80% of other people, plus are doing that both gen pop as well as athletes. Um, you know, and those that can't, we will do other things. Uh, it's just a, it's just a tool that I don't feel like I need to get rid of. It's a good tool. If I've got the best ax for the job, I'm going to use the best ax for the job. Uh, if I, if I can't use that for whatever reason, I'm not going to use that ax. I'll use a different ax or a saw or something like that. So it just comes down to, uh, you know, the benefits of it. In, in our scenario or our case situation seem to be quite great. Athletes like them. They're fun to perform. We see no risk of injury in doing them uh, with the athletes that we do use them in. Um, it does have a good carryover to sport performance. I think while the research is not conclusive on that, I think it is pretty, uh, pretty well supportive of the fact that Olympic lifts uh, and derivatives, whether that's clean, full, or otherwise, can be very beneficial. Uh, I think the power outputs on those activities are very, very high. I think it's one of the few activities that has a great uh, RFD reaction and a technical component uh, in the gym that we don't see elsewhere. 
Yeah, I, th- I think you, you 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 said a really important word there, and it was you can get people to be confident at the Olympian list. So, like I always kind of use the analogy of there's a big difference between like learning something and then mastering something, or even there's a big difference between learning, being confident, and then mastering something. So, like I, I believe if you, if you feel that you as a coach can get someone to a level of competency that they actually are, are getting a physical benefit or their training a physical capacity or attribute from the only proliferation well then it's it, it can definitely be argued that's a worthwhile uh, addition to the program i think what happens though is you get like a lot of people who are very negative Olympic lifts. they're seeing like a lot of those universities put up those videos of those starfish power cleans that's moving really slow and they're like why would anyone do that and it's like well a good coach isn't isn't having their athletes perform them like that like so uh, again, it's kind of on this, as we spoke about earlier on, you don't want to be at either end of that continuum, like it's all black, it's all white, it's, you know, it's context specific too, and then like, when you say an Olympic variation, I kind of, I need to kind of see it, you know, like, is it coached well, does it move fast, does it look good, or are we talking about like sloppy, horrible starfish technique, like the type of, te- the type of cleans that Brian Mann said there was no uh, correlation between cleans and vertical jump, because they found they were just moving the weight too slowly, and uh, when they went to the VBT model, and once they cleaned up their technique and their velocity and bar speed then they started to see the correlation again between cleans and vertical jumps so yeah i think again it's 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 not a black or white answer right uh what uh, what do you like for time mike have you got a few more minutes uh i do have to wrap it up probably in a in no more than about five minutes if that's okay yeah that's that's fine so just uh there's one or two more questions so maybe you can uh, give more like zen answers but a question i really wanted to ask you because you travel an awful lot um, is that how do you look after yourself in terms of training, nutrition, sleep, and just your overall lifestyle? Basically, how do you keep yourself sane? Like, cause you, I'd say you're similar to myself in that you like to get your training in and you still like to eat well as you travel and you still like to probably get some good sleep in. So do you have any sort of hacks or, or sort of habits or rituals that you use as you travel like to make sure you keep on top of your training and your nutrition along with obviously keeping on top of your business and everything as you go away? Sure. So... Uh... I, I will start off by saying I'm kind of genetically blessed in that I don't sleep very much to begin with. I probably would naturally gravitate to about five hours of sleep a night. Wow. I'm a short phase uh, night night owl, and also I uh, I have the metabolism that allows me to eat a lot. But that said, I am getting older now, and I am a lot more conscious, and I do travel across many time zones quite often. And I'm I'm doing a handful of things. One is I take HRV readings every morning on myself just to see if things are kind of going awry and adjust training accordingly. Uh, my bottom of the barrel requirements that I need to see is that I will do something every day. So people ask me, do I train every day? Maybe from the outside, it looks like I train every day. I will do something. If I'm in the hotel room and I'm, or, uh, you know, wherever, and I just got in, I was on a plane for 18 hours. I will still get off the plane and do something. I set a minimum threshold of a certain number of reps in body weight exercises, I I actually adore <laughs> going to hotels, gyms, and using machines that I would never use at my own facility just because it's a change of pace. It's like a guilty yeah, pleasure. Yeah. So I never I, I never give myself an opportunity to opt out. It is a must-have for me to do that. Um, I I uh, try to eat relatively well, but I'm not super super strict on this. I'm on a pretty high protein diet, but I you know, I'm not a guy that's going to go uh, be a pain in the ass if we go out for beers or go out 
and uh, go out to eat, I will have a good time. I will basically be pretty flexible with what I eat. But if I eat poorly at one point in time, I will uh, I will make up for that, so to speak. Whether that is increasing my training load a little bit or or uh, eating a little bit stricter for the next meal. Thankfully, I don't have to be super hyper observant of that. Um, you know, I, I have increasingly found that I handle stress quite well. Uh, I've always thought that, but I actually feel like I do better in higher stress environments than otherwise. But I think my, the take home there is that you have to find out where, where you sit in terms of what stresses you and what, what helps you out. What most people would consider stress is tend to be my happy, happy place. Uh, I like to work a little bit more. Um, I, you know, if I stop working, I'll actually find that I feel a little more stressed because I know what's accumulating. I know what's building up. Uh, I, I don't, I have, I live a life where I don't need to vacation from it. I enjoy what I do and so forth. Um, that said, looking at HRV and other physiological uh, metrics that I'll monitor from time to time shows me really clearly what will screw me up. If I uh, cut my sleep too short, I will definitely get a, uh, little drop in my HRV readings. If I have uh, transatlantic flights with, with little movement involved, it will hurt me for sure. If I drink too much, it will hurt me for sure. Uh, I am taking, a, I am taking um, melatonin and doing a handful of sleep hacks, I guess, to, to force my body to sleep a little bit more as there's a growing body of evidence to suggest that people should get as much as uh, seven and a half to eight and a half hours of sleep. Uh, I can trick my body into getting about six and a half if I, if I pull out all the hacks at once. That's things like melatonin and zinc and uh, magnesium and turning off the lights and not, not watching too much TV or being on my iPhone, taking a hot shower and doing some minute or two of meditation at night. Uh, if I pull out all the things like that, watch when I eat uh, relative to when I go to sleep, I can, I can increase my sleep or if I'm traveling a lot, I can reset into a new time zone relatively quickly. So there's all these different little games you can play in terms of sleep manipulation that I found have, have been quite helpful. But at the end of the day, I think you need to figure out what works for yourself. It's shocking how different people are. We work with a lot of different athletes and clients, and I'll recommend them as a starting place to get eight hours of sleep. Meanwhile, I almost never get that, and never feel tired. So, um, you know, I think we have to figure out and start to learn our own bodies, I think is the starting place. And then uh, have an unbiased view of that and make actionable changes accordingly. Cool, cool. And then just re real quick, I know you got to go in, in, could you, what would you say is, is the, the biggest lessons you've learned so far in your career? And then just after that as well, what are your top resources to all the listeners? And then finally we can just wrap up with where people can, uh, can find out more about you. So what would you say have been the biggest lessons you've learned? Your top resources, and then where can people find out more about Mike Young and the Lab? So, uh, I guess one big lesson I've learned is that things are not as important as we think they are. So, for I think you've probably seen this at, with your time spent with Dan, is that Dan is a master coach who understands all of the variables. But if you look at his training plans, they're as simple as they can possibly be. And from the pen and paper standpoint, you might not even see any any changes throughout the course of the of the year. Uh, meanwhile, when I was a younger coach, I would uh, lose sleep over the X's and O's and the manipulation of volumes and intensities and exercise selections and so forth. 
Uh, a lot of people lose sight of that. Basically, just do loading correctly, and you'll get 90% of where you want to go. Uh, all that other stuff can be white noise, and if it can easily be washed out in the context of the entire process, if things like nutrition and sleep and so forth aren't, aren't, aren't on point. Um, in terms of uh, you know what I have going on, the next speaking engagement is in Brazil in a couple months. I'm really excited with that. Got David Joyce, Stan Baker, Brett Bartholomew, wow. uh, Matt Jordan. So it's a, a truly superpower thing. I'm excited to to learn from from these friends and colleagues of mine just as much as I am to uh, speak there. Uh, in terms of resources of, that that I follow, I think there's a there's a handful out there. In terms of the trusted ones. Uh, I think Altus puts out great content. Science of Sport puts out great content. There's a handful of books that I that I recommend to all of our uh, yeah, mentor mentor coaches in our mentorship program. That's Science and Practice of Strength and Conditioning. That is uh, Running uh, by Bosch and Klomp. That is uh, uh, the NSCA Manual, um, High Performance Training for Sport. David Joyce. There's a handful of them. Super training is an absolute must, I believe. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I, I tend to tweet out my trusted sources as, as much as the things that I will eventually read or have read. They, they tend to go on my Twitter feed, places that I think are good resources for coaches to look at from different fields. Um, and then I, I put a lot of content out there personally on um, Fit for Football, F-U-T-B-O-L.com. EliteTrack.com and um, you know podcasts like this as well. So um, all of which is free. I'm not charging anything for any of that content. And um, if if someone needed to research, uh, contact me or had any questions, I'm terrible with email. I'm perpetually about a month behind, uh, as many people may know. But I do try to keep up with. Uh, uh, Twitter contact, so I do hop on there and can do that quite easily. Uh, and my Twitter handle is just at Mike Young. Great, great stuff, Mike. Great stuff. Yeah, I'm gonna have to be back on because I've got more stuff on a little faster, but I know you've got to run. Uh, just finally, Mike, just with pro performance, uh, do you just want to maybe touch on pro performance and your, your mentorship program. What are they? What are they about? Sure, so we have a mentorship program at Athletic Lab, we bring in as many as uh. 15 coaches or applied sports scientists every quarter and we take them through a, a mentorship where we we teach them what we call the athletic lab way so they both get applied as well as uh, educational information see how we do things and get exposed to different teams and uh, different ways of me means and methods of training different sports science uh instrumentation and methods and so forth, different athletes, different sports. And then with Pro Performance, uh, that's my UK-based company that I co-own with James Baker. Shout out to James, who just was awarded the UK SCA. Yeah, he was. Yeah. S&C Coach of the Year. Uh, he's a brilliant guy himself. And um, that's a, an educational and networking company. We put out what we do two clinics a year, one in the US and one in the UK. And uh, we have been recording these, uh, all these top flight lectures and so forth and putting that information out there, some of which is free on our YouTube channel, but we also have uh, some more highly edited and uh, I guess better framed 
videos from these conferences that you can find on proformance.pro. Uh, some great, great content from some unbelievably intelligent speakers, ranging from uh, guys like Boo Schexnader. His, his video should be out shortly to um, you know guys from premiership clubs, and, and we had Alex Natera this year and so forth. So a great, great resource there as well. Yeah, and the, the fee is nominal. It's like it's a steal for what you're getting. So I'll definitely make sure to put that in the show notes. But as I said, I definitely want to get back on. There's other other topics we'll talk on, like how you classify or apply metrics, your daily rituals, and you know if you had five people to invite to dinner, I'd love to ask you that too. But listen, I know you got to go, so I'll just I'll wrap this up real quick, Mike, and then I'll I'll, I'll let you go. Uh, so just just hold on one sec. So guys, Mike's got to run here. So absolutely brilliant podcast. Make sure you. You're subscribed and trying to share this out. But until next time, guys, I'll talk to you soon. Take care and stay strong. Mm-hmm.